Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Take Back. We are here with Mr. Raheem Mohammed. Raheem, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Zach. It's a pleasure to have you, man. How's your day going? Going great. Um, had have one uh, one threat of of a libel lawsuit already, so I'm on a good start. Hoping to hoping to keep uh, the momentum rolling. I you mean, know, if you, you got to catch up, man. I think they threaten me with libel every day. But you know what? The weird part oh, wow. is they never they never put a a lawsuit out there. So I, okay. I wonder why. Does uh, TBA have in house counsel yet, or? Oh, we've all we from the very beginning we've had in house counsel, and then we also have uh, Leighton Gray is uh, working the investigation with Elections Alberta. And he's doing a great job. So uh, he's also he's the one that won that court case. I think Jeffrey Rath was on it as well mm-hmm. against the Alberta government, uh, saying that the mandates were unlawful and the courts ruled that they were unlawful. So mm-hmm. it's a good he's a good lawyer to have. Yeah. Beat the government already. So yeah, see if he can't beat him again. First of many, I hope. <laughs> I hope. I hope. If you only have one suit pending, are you even really standing up for anything? <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I need to up my game. Like you, you really, you really need to get going, man. Like yeah, we need, we need have, more truth. We, we need, we need more truth out of you, my friend. Yeah, I we have too much truth. cautious professor energy. I'm only a year and a half. <laughs> oh, you absolutely do. So. I was actually going to bring that up. I was like, man, you got to smack them around a little bit more. They, they don't give a fuck about you being nice, right? They're yeah. just gonna. They they want to destroy you. So okay, you know, at the end of the day. They want to destroy you, so at least you got to, you know, punch them in the nose every time they come for you. You know what I okay, mean? Okay, so this is going to be a pep talk. Uh, <laughs> anyway, okay. Good to know. No, no, no. But what I want, and the reason I wanted Zach to open it, because mm. I don't think Zach is aware of your body of work quite mm. the same way I am. And the nice thing about, I think, this podcast is introducing people who may not be aware of that there are still people in the world that, uh, you know, that haven't gone crazy. And I think you're one of them. Mm. And I think our goal is to kind of gather those people's ideas together and present them to a wider audience. So, Zach, what do you want to know about Raheem Muhammad? Well, let's start. Um, why don't you tell us what you do? That, that would be a good place to start. Sure. Um, so I'm Canada's foremost uh, pro-Israel Zionist who happens to have the last name Muhammad. Uh, it's gotten <laughs> me a lot of attention uh, over the past four months. Uh, so I'm a columnist, um, mostly for the National Post, uh, write about um, the Middle East, uh, write a little bit about Alberta, um, sort of take on topics here, there, and any- anywhere. Um, and I've just been sort of getting uh, my feet wet in the discourse and in the political arena here in Alberta. I've been in Calgary uh, about a year and a half, uh, so just uh, just playing it by ear uh, for the time being. So He's a new, new kid on the block. Exactly. But, uh, as I said to my wife when she moved here, I said, you know, people don't know who... Uh, you are here yet, but they will. And I think the same is the case for you, Raheem. You've, uh, you're taking some good stands. And I know Albertans like people who take uh, real stands on issues. Yes, um, your uh, wife so thank is, you for that. is my favorite, uh, favorite journalist named Rachel uh, by a wide margin in Canada. Uh, Gilmore's not even close. She's uh, she's um, my favorite Rachel in general. In fact, my yeah. favorite woman. <laughs> I remember people were like chiding you about like not being in Rachel Gilmore's league. And I'm like, okay. Um, you know, I don't want to be that guy, but just Google Rachel wife? Emanuel, Google Rachel Gilmore and, and yeah, draw your own conclusions. So, so Raheem, I have a question for you. Uh, considering how I would say um, media and journalism has gone in the past five years, are you ever embarrassed to call yourself a journalist? Well, thankfully, I'm a columnist. Uh, so more than anything, I write opinion pieces. So obviously, 
I can't just make up facts as I go along, but it's my job, uh, not just to inform in an objective or dispassionate way, uh, but to have a viewpoint and articulate that viewpoint and stir the pot. Uh, so I don't uh, particularly consider myself a journalist. Um, I would say someone like Rachel Emanuel is a journalist. She actually, um, you know, she logs a lot of miles. She puts in the shoe leather work. Um, she goes to a bunch of meetings and, and gets uh, sort of firsthand um, comments from people. And I'm kind of more toward the end of sausage making. I'm more, um, you know, I I'll think use Daily Wire is kind of exactly. how I think of you, like exactly. kind of a, yeah. a Canadian version of, you know, uh, uh, Michael Knowles or, yeah. uh, you know, or that's at least yeah. I think the vision that you're building towards. Yeah. And, and I would say Rachel is more journalist. I'd say True North. Um, yeah, they do a lot, does of, a lot of good journalism. Yeah, yeah. Um, so during the Alberta election, I leaned a lot on Rachel's journalism. Um, she was asking a lot of questions that other journalists weren't um, that I was able to put in my opinion column. So I, I would say I'm more kind of toward the end of the chain. If you think about um, this whole thing is sausage making, uh, people like Rachel are breaking the news. They're creating the news. I'm commenting and on it afterwards. So I would um, more than anything, uh, call myself a, a columnist. Um, you know, slash slash shit disturber, um, slash highly educated troll. Um, but I, I don't. Hey, you have quite. like three master's degrees. I think I saw uh, on Twitter once. Two master's degrees and a doctorate. So um, my oh, wow. uh, one of my one of my best friends. Uh, I won't say his name because we don't share our politics anymore, mm. and he doesn't want to be associated with me in that way. But he uh, he has three master's degrees and just finished uh, his PhD at Oxford. So oh wow. Uh, yeah, I know. I know the the highly educated, despite what Twitter may tell you. I suppose. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm still the yeah. underachieving child of an Indian family. Got two brothers. One one was a cardiologist. Um, you know, the other is a high powered uh, senior partner at this accounting firm who brings in uh, you know six figures a year. So I'm still very much the uh, the runt of the litter. Man, that's a tough I, crowd to compete in. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> when did your family uh, come to Canada? So they were part of that class of 1972 of Ugandan Asians um, that were expelled by Idi Amin. Um, actually, uh, Nahid Denshi is of a similar vintage, not that I would associate with him too much. But um, so, yeah, they came in um, the fall of 1972. They were basically given 90 days in a suitcase to leave Uganda, um, settled in south southern Ontario. Uh, my father, thankfully, was able to finish his medical training at uh, the University of West. Western Ontario and London, um, then set up a practice in psychiatry in Camelot's British Columbia. Um, so for a while, he was the only psychiatrist in a town of like 65, 70,000 people. Um, so he had stuff to say about everyone. He had everyone's uh, sort of business <laughs> on his docket. Um, so yeah, and I, I grew up and, and was born and raised in Kamloops, which is That's in the interior wonder, of British I think Columbia. Kamloops is a wonderful, wonderful place. Oh, it's great. Place. Hidden gem. Oh. Uh, love Not that entire Thompson, Okanagan. I mean, well, I mean, it's just like the best. That's like Switzerland. Yeah, uh, Kamloops, Vernon, Penticton, yeah. Kelowna, that entire Thompson, Okanagan. The whole, the whole interior of BC is some of the most beautiful places yeah. in the world. Yeah. And definitely more like Alberta culturally than the coast. Like oh, Vancouver coast Island and Vancouver. Not, yeah, yeah. Kind of its own deal. Um, you know, Kamloops, Kelowna. Um, we're a little bit more. Kamloops, when I was growing up, was quite a blue collar town. Um, about half of my classmates growing up. Um, their parents would either have worked at the pulp mill or at the copper mine. Um, so it has that kind of blue collar, hardworking ethos uh, that you see in a lot of Alberta, which is yeah. right up my alley. Yeah, that's so, your, your bread and butter. Mm. So what was the fire under you to get into the kind of work that you do? What made it interesting to you? 
Um, I guess there was a point where um, I felt as though, you know, persons of color, um, particularly Muslims here in North America, were being used as props, um, where, you know, kind of there were, you know, mostly kind of left-leaning white progressives, um, assuming, uh, you know, almost um, that sort of automatically by default um, that we would share their left of center opinions, um, you know, that, that we, if we didn't share those opinions, um, we either didn't know better or we were being indoctrinated by, you know, far right sources on the internet. So you saw over the summer, um, Justin Trudeau was talking to a number of Muslim men in Calgary who were voicing concerns, um, you know, about the kind of content that um, their children were being taught in elementary school. Um, and Justin Trudeau kind of dismissed that of, Oh, you know, it's the hard right in the U.S. It's, um, you know, these sort of white right-wing actors that are spewing disinformation and disinformation, and you're being brainwashed by that. Um, so I really thought it was important for me to, uh, you know, my surname's Muhammad. There's no getting around it, um, you know, to convey that, uh, you know, we can't all fit in those cookie-cutter views. Um, I speak for a lot of us, I think, um, you know, who came to Canada because it's a freer place, uh, than where we came from that obviously, obviously want to re- maintain our values at home, um, but also want to work hard, also want to find our own piece of the Canadian dream, um, you know, want to be independent, don't want to be, uh, don't want to be sort of dismissed or taken as anyone's uh, sort of tokenized or uh, patronized by, um, you know, well-intentioned uh, left of center progressives. We want, we want to forge our own identity and you know we want to uh, we, we want to be be seen as individuals. Um, we want to be seen sort of beyond just our race and our religion. So I felt like um, you know being one of the few right leaning commentators with the surname Muhammad, I could really push back um, against some of the narratives that are out there. That's really interesting. Why is it that you think the left of center treat? Um, treat people like you in a patronizing way how do you think that has come to happen it's interesting like for me i'm over it um for me if i could never talk about race or religion again um i would absolutely do that it's interesting you you know you go back to the 1960s um martin luther king had a dream where you know we're going to judge people as people uh you know based on the skills they bring to the table based on their character um not based on any of these descriptive characteristics like race and religion and I think more people on the right, you know, by by and large, can jive with that. You know, can by and large, um, you know, David, you're not going to care about the race or religion of an employee not of yours, you know, so long no. as that individual does a good job, um, yes. you know, so long yes. as that individual is a person of high character. Um, but then that runs antithetical um, to this um, growing left of center dogma of EDI, uh, which James Lindsay can convey a lot better than I did. Um, but you you know you have this growing paradigm um, in a lot of left to center institutions um, that associates maleness with privilege, that associates whiteness with privilege, um, and that associates you know being of color, being a religious minority, um, as someone who's unprivileged, and a lot of the time someone who can't fend for themselves um, and needs people with more privilege to go to bat for them. So I think uh, you have this worldview that's well intentioned. Uh, but at the same time, misguided and patronizing. And uh, I think somewhat ironically or, or, or somewhat counterintuitively reinforces um, a lot of the racial divisions and 
the divisions on the basis of identity uh, that it purports to be fighting. Mm. So let's give you a moment to speak. As as a person of color in Canada, mm. do you feel underprivileged? Not in the least. Um, I mean, I know I am from a specific socioeconomic strata. I know I had a lot of privileges. Um, maybe brand new immigrants to Canada haven't had. Um, but, you know, growing up, um, we were reasonably well off. You know, I played sports. Um, I had a chance to get a good education, uh, went to good colleges, um, had a chance to build my career. Um, you know, did I get the odd, welcome to Quickie Mart, you know, did I get the odd, you know, racial whatever? Sure. Um, but had any of that seriously impeded my ability to advance socially, um, you know, to be upwardly mobile, to pursue an education, to pursue a career? No. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, um, you know, there are, I think, 8 billion people in the world right now. Um, I'm better off than all but maybe 200 million. Um, so no, <laughs> I mean, I've never once uh, felt disadvantaged. I think everyone has a certain cross to bear. And I think to a certain degree, um, dealing with a certain level of adversity uh, growing up can be beneficial because it teaches resilience. Um, so no, I mean, I've never felt like a victim. I've, I've had um, some challenges uh, associated with maybe, you know, being one of the one or two brown kids uh, growing up in my elementary school or, or whatever. But um, I think on balance, uh, my privileges have uh, greatly outweighed that. And I just, um, you know, I feel fortunate for all of the opportunities I've had. And I think, uh, you know, more than likely, you know, potentially having the last name Muhammad um, in some cases may have helped, may have been okay. You know, we don't have this box. We can check this box, um, you know, because Raheem has credentials that are broadly similar to this dude named Smith. Um, so I think it's about a wash. Um, I can't tell you how many times that's happened. I can't tell you how many times I've been disadvantaged uh, because of my surname. Um, so I, I, again, if I never had to talk about race or religion again, I would be fine with it. Um, but personally, I, I can't speak to every single immigrant in Canada. I can't speak to every single Canadian of color. Um, I've been incredibly fortunate. We've been incredibly fortunate uh, to have the opportunities we've had in Canada. And that's just how I'm going to take it. Do you think, um, so it, it's interesting. I, I have an observation. So you say you would be perfectly content to never talk about race or religion again, because it's something that if, uh, at least in the way that I've understood that you've said it, it's something that's seemingly unimportant to you as it really should be in a free country where we're not supposed to care about race or religion. Mm. Do you feel like a lot of the, uh, I mean, I'm I'm making an assumption here, so I'll say the assumption. I'm, I'm making the assumption that you're connect, more connected to an immigration population than I am. Not that I'm disconnected mm. from it, but I'm just making the assumption because that is your background. You are more connected than I am. So the question is, do you feel like that feeling, the the feeling of we are done talking about race and religion, uh, is something that would be fairly echoed through the immigrant community that you are connected with? Because from my perspective and from from kind of my side of this issue, it feels like it's mostly thing that white people from Canada worry about, mm. not the immigrants. <laughs> yeah, I think it's what you might call a luxury belief. Um, it's you know if you're someone who is in a white collar profession. If you're in higher education, um, you know, if you're a teacher, uh, you have the time, you have the luxury to hold these sort of aspirational um, egalitarian views. But, um, you know, your average Canadian immigrant family, you go to the northeast of Calgary, 
um, they're hustling. You know, they're um, running a restaurant. They're running a convenience store. Um, they want to make money. Um, they want to have safe streets like the rest of us. You know, they don't want to have their businesses vandalized. They don't have to worry, um, you know, about, um, you know, being mugged or whatever. Um, you know, they want to take home a good chunk of their money. They don't want to be overtaxed. So I think, um, you know, you look at the average Canadian immigrant and there's a self-selection of people who choose uh, to move to places like Canada, the United States. Um, those individuals tend to be enterprising. They tend to be hardworking. Uh, you know, they tend to want to make their own way. Um, so I think if you talk to the average Canadian immigrant, they'll say we're kind of over this identity politics stuff. Um, we want the same, you know, low taxes, safe streets, uh, decent infrastructure, uh, you know, kind of whatever um, sort of pragmatic policies uh, I, I think your average hardworking Canadian would want. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, I think it's interesting that you you bring that up because that's definitely been my my experience. I don't really have any problem with almost all of the immigrant communities mm. in Canada. The only issue I have with immigration is housing. Is that mm. we just can't house them right now, <clears throat> and and I don't think it's fair to bring people here in such high numbers if they can't get houses. But mm. other than that, I don't. The problem that I have with the left's take on all this is is that they are acting as if they're trying to be, I don't know, what, what would be the word I'm looking for? They're trying to act compassionate, like mm. we're helping people. And now we have tent cities of refugees living on mm. Toronto's streets. Mm. And that's not compassionate. In fact, I know Ukraine, Ukrainian immigrants from Ontario who are moving back to the Ukraine. War-torn Ukraine. Yeah, to war torn Ukraine because they have a better life there than they do in Canada. And I know last night I was out with a, a Georgian friend of mine and we were just uh, at a bar. Uh, he was drinking and I was having some tea and just chatting and eating. And one of the things that he brought up was he said, here in Calgary, it's like people are still alive and enjoying life and going out and doing things. He said for, in Toronto, it's uh, it's just despair. But we were actually talking to the waitress about how she feels. And she says, well, I can't even imagine being able to afford a home. Mm. And imagine that. You can't even imagine being able to afford a home. And that's you know, a lot of people in my generation and Zach's generation. And then the generation after us has, doesn't even think about owning a home. Mm. Uh, and that's where we're at right now. And we're there because of bad policy and bad governance, not because of immigrants. Mm. In fact... We absolutely need immigrants in this country because Canadians are too lazy to even have enough children to keep up the population. And, uh, and if, we don't, if we don't do that, we're going to have a pretty horrible time when we're all too old to even take care of ourselves. Mm. So it's an absurd, absurd accusation, I think, that the left levels at the right, that we don't want immigrants just because we want reasonable policy. Mm. And I know that you write a lot about that, and I really appreciate your voice on topics like that. But one of the things I'd like you to kind of reflect on, you've been in Alberta for a year and a half. Mm. We're obviously not an Alberta specific podcast, but uh, I have a lot of uh, feelings about this place and attachment mm. to it. Um, what do you think? Well, what, what, what's different about here than where you've been? And you've been in a number of different places in mm. the world. What do you like about this place? Why did you come here? Why did you decide to make this your home? At least for now and maybe forever. Yeah, so um, I was very fortunate. I spent 10 years in the United States. 
And I was in North Carolina and Kentucky, which is a lot different, I think, than if I were in, you know, New York City, San Francisco, Chicago. Um, you know, I was in red states. I was in relatively small towns, um, college towns that were, you know, by the standards of the states, somewhat left leaning. Uh, but, you know, I saw a kind of can do energy uh, that I really liked in the States. Um, and, and you really saw this during the pandemic. People were so creative in the way they worked around mandates. I wish I could think of a better example than this, but I remember um, I read about a strip club in Houston that um, it converted to a drive through strip club. So that was what? just so clever <laughs> and just so like indicative. That's, I, I uh, don't even understand how that would work. Yeah, so you just kind of drive through and and the woman would be on the pole. Okay. If, if they if they, if, if they uh, did, you just had, if they, you, you had things like that where people were kind of innovate, innovating their way. Uh, <laughs> you know, restaurants that were dining were going to to take out. Um, you know, people were figuring things out, and um, you know, there wasn't this kind of looking for government. Um, it was you know, people took initiative. Um, they found ways to be super creative. Um, and to me, that was very much um, that spoke to kind of an American spirit of Canduism. And um, as far as Canadian provinces, I see that in Saskatchewan, I see that in Alberta. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the populations. First of all, you know, Saskatchewan and Alberta are both relatively young provinces. I think they were both established in 1905. Um, so a lot of the yeah, people not, who kind not of migrated. Even, like, I think our hundredth birthday was definitely in my lifetime. So. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the people that kind of migrated, um, you know, came in from the plains, the plains states, the upper Midwest, um, you know, places like Montana, Wyoming, Idaho. Um, so I think a lot of the populations are more similar to the United States. And I also just feel like there's more opportunity. Um, you can break into a field like media, you know, if you're not Brian Mulroney's son, um, if you're not, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, Pierre yeah. Trudeau's son. Um, there's less emphasis on what your surname is or, you know, whether you went to the right schools and you have the right network. And, uh, you know, if you're good at what you do, uh, you can climb the ranks in Alberta pretty quick. Um, so I think I'm a prime example of that, you know, in less than a year, uh, into my time in Calgary, you know, I was writing two articles per week, um, for a national newspaper, uh, during Alberta's election campaign. Uh, so, I mean, I think that speaks to, uh, you know, just how, how much opportunity there is here in Alberta and the sort of ethos of, okay, we don't really care what your name is. We don't care where you came from. Uh, you show up on time, you know, you, you consistently hand in quality work. Uh, you know, you take pride in what you do. Uh, there's always opportunity for you. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of, um, I think, geography is destiny in some of that, right? Mm -hmm. I don't know. If, I guess Kentucky and South Carolina, I've never lived in places that warm, so I don't really know what it's like. But uh, but I think when it when you when you exist in a place that will kill you if you walk outside unprepared, I think it changes a little bit of your perspective on reality, right? Uh, I think you you think about the world differently, and and that shapes people more than I would argue that shapes people often in, in ways more than race or even religion uh, to a degree. Uh, I like your thoughts on that. There, yeah, I'll hop in real quick. There is there is something about people who come from a cold climate. I've noticed that anywhere that I go that's cold, people from Norway, people from Sweden, like Scandin Scandinavian people have a ruggedness and a toughness to no, them that I love, yeah. oh, that I just yeah. absolutely love. But sorry, Raheem, go ahead. I love it too. Yeah, and I, I would say there's a spirit of community solidarity, which I would not say has anything that approximates socialism, but there's just 
a spirit of helping your neighbor out. Um, you know, we've all in Alberta been at a point where, you know, we've had our car stuck in a ditch in the winter or, oh, yeah. you know, our, our, <laughs> or, or know, our battery doesn't work. Exactly. Um, yeah. You know, our, our water heater craps out in the dead of winter. And I think that creates a ruggedness, um, but also a spirit of generosity and charity, um, which is something I really like about Alberta um, that, uh, you know, there is this sort of entrepreneurial spirit. Um, but at the same time, there's a sense that shit happens. Uh, you know, you've been there, I've been there. Um, so I believe the, the gentleman's name is Monty Buller, um, but he was a politician out. Yes. Of, what a hero. I, I think even yeah, though exactly. we didn't agree on our politics, but he but, but I mean, lost his life, uh, you know, trying to dig a car out of, of a snowbank. Uh, couldn't care less that he wore a, a turban, you know, couldn't care less that I had a beard. Um, like to me, that's, that's very much the ethos of, you know, that's very much the spirit of this province. Exactly. Yes. Yes. I, um, it's funny. I don't talk about this a lot, although I have talked about it before on the Canadian story and earlier, our earlier podcast, really true fiction that I had with uh, my other, our other cousin, Luke. But, um, uh, when I was gr- when I was growing up, nine uh, eleven happened, and obviously there was a huge media narrative in North America for, uh, I would say, fifteen years or more. It was very anti-Muslim, mm-hmm. and it was anti-Muslim specifically. I wouldn't say it was anti-Arab. It was literally anti-Muslim, mm-hmm. and I think that indoctrination uh, seeped into a lot of people's minds. I know it seeped into mine for sure because it was just so prevalent, right? Especially mm-hmm. the American side of it. And uh, it wasn't actually until I moved to Ottawa and I was dating a uh, woman at the time who was uh, uh, serving in the bureaucracy. And um, and she introduced me to a fellow named Rami, who was actually a Muslim convert. Uh, and we ended up starting to have breakfast together every uh, week for years, actually. And he became, became a friend. I went to his wedding uh, here in Calgary, actually. He married a Calgary girl. And um, over the years, I've actually come to understand that the division between uh, Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, those divisions are important from a theological perspective, Uh, but they're actually a lot more the narcissism of petty difference uh, than I think people give it credit for. I've heard the phrase spokes of the same wheel being used I have obviously uh, have my own faith, and that is Christianity, and and I believe it to be true. But I think that um, very often politics is used religion's differences to convince us that we should be fighting one another. But I see that at least in Alberta. I can't really speak for the rest of the country, but I know that in Alberta, I've been speaking to imams. I've been working with a lot of Muslims on uh, this parental rights stuff, particularly. So I don't know uh, what your faith is like, but we've had a Muslim Islam before to talk about it. And I'd be interested, what role does faith play for you in your profession, in your, in your day-to-day life? And how do you see that uh, reflected in a pluralistic society? Great question. There's so much there. I want to go back a little bit to, to what you said at the beginning of that statement. Um, with the post 9-11 stuff, I agree. Um, you know, there were things like 24, um, you know, for me, it was hard. Uh, I had more fear um, going into an airport. So so we lived pretty close to the um, British Columbia-Washington state border uh, when I was growing up. And when I was growing up, 
you know, we go to Bellingham all the time. Uh, you know, we go to Bellingham to get milk. Uh, so, but, and, and yeah, obviously that yeah. slowed down. But one thing I will say is in North America, um, you didn't get the kind of domestic terrorism problem um, that you saw in places like Belgium, France, the United Kingdom. Um, you didn't get anything that approximated the Manchester attack, uh, that appro- approximated the Paris attack. And one thing I'll say with this phenomenon of radical Islamic terrorism, I'm sure, sure you can point to parts of the Quran um, that are problematic, parts of the Quran that incentivize this sort of activity. Um, but I think above all, this is an example of idle hands do the devil's work. Uh, you look at places in the Middle East, youth unemployment well over 50%. Uh, places like Egypt, Yemen, um, a lot of young men um, feel like they should be moving on with their lives, uh, don't have the economic opportunities, don't have the social opportunities. Uh, polygamy is something people don't want to talk about, um, but a lot of the time young men can't find partners. Um, so yeah, you have these sort of frustrated young men uh, you know, getting well into their 20s and 30s um, without any clear direction, without any clear career path. Um, so something like being part of a radical movement uh, would be quite seductive to them. But I think here in North America, um, you know, the immigrants from Yemen, the immigrants from Syria, uh, Lebanon, um, you know, they're busy running bodegas. They're busy driving Ubers. You know, they're they're making their way in the world. They're hustling. Building um, so construction think, companies. Exactly. Doing, exactly. Uh, like, oh, man, I if it wasn't for immigrants in this country, we would already be in absolute economic decline. Yeah. So exactly. I'm, I'm big on economic opportunities, as many jobs as we can create. And I think particularly blue collar opportunities uh, for young men. Yes. And um, well, I think real opportunities. Yeah. Like government is yeah. not a, a real job that that, you know, I understand there are roles that government needs to play, but they are not productive. They yeah. don't they don't. Well, I guess I would say the frontline workers for government are productive. Obviously, doctors, we need those services. Nurses, we need those services. Uh, teachers, we need those services, but um, a lot of paper pushing going on in oh, government. Yeah. And yeah. the, you know what I found out yesterday that absolutely uh, crushed my heart? Mm-hmm. Germany spends the same amount per capita that we do on healthcare, mm-hmm. and they have ten percent less. Uh, sorry, they have ninety percent less administrators than we mm-hmm. do yeah. in their healthcare system. <sighs> yeah, I mean, you saw it during the pandemic. Uh, so many people, their jobs are just being on Zoom meetings all day um, that go nowhere, just sending emails from department to department, um, you know, writing reports uh, that maybe five people read. Um, yeah, I mean, just that bloat. Um, and, you know, I, I worked for a period of time as an intern in a government agency. And, man, um, it was soul crushing because um, also like, you, you know, just just uh, staring at a computer all day and pretending to work like that, that does have a certain you know that that takes a toll on um on your emotional well-being um so actually what's very interesting is um i remember when tucker carlson when he was in edmonton he said part of why he likes alberta and not ontario is when he sees ontario he sees i believe an economy built on banking and government um when he sees alberta he sees an economy built on creating energy creating food which I, i i love that contrast I love it too. No, yeah, no, so, so not, I, I thought not it was just a really jobs, good thing to draw out. No, it's a genuine also opportunity. Like, well, what well, what are you basing uh, your reality on? Really, is what it comes down to. It's because Ontario has more than enough mineral and uh, energy wealth. In <laughs> fact, it is better positioned than Alberta in many ways with all the hydro that it can produce <laughs> to to do insane 
and incredible things. And they're wasting their economy away on real estate and finance. Uh, they could be they could be supplying the world's rare earth minerals. They yeah. could be, and they could do it in the greenest way possible in the mm. entire world. But but they have no ambition or identity. Mm. Whereas Alberta, you know, our oil was not easy to get. People mm. act like uh, what happened here was inevitable or just an accident or the accident of geography. Mm. But uh, the people who built Alberta, they were they were strong men. Yeah. Uh, very strong men and women, of course. And, and there was a lot of intellectual oh, innovation yes. and, and, and technology um, that went into, uh, even when I was growing up, I mean, oil sands production is a lot cleaner and a lot cheaper, um, you know, than it was 15, 20 years ago, um, you know, back when, when we were growing up. And, and a lot of that has to do with the kind of intellectual capital uh, that we've invested in, in that production. We don't give ourselves enough credit. No, well, no, all we do is bash our own heads in about how horrible we are because we live in like a a weird world in which, you know, your moral clarity is based on your own self-deprivation or, or degradation. Right? You got to degradate yourself constantly and that that's how you prove your own moral worth and it's Do you find that even in Alberta? Well, not that. It's not nearly as bad here, but uh yeah. It's, you know, becoming that way in Edmonton and I think it growing, you know, in, in a growing way in Calgary. So um, I, I think one of the things that brought you and I together, David, is our mutual dislike for Max Fawcett. Yeah, and, oh, absolutely. And, you know, yes, I think yes. he represents a small but growing, uh, you know, contingent of, you know, that self-hating uh, bunch of Albertans. And, and my, my question is, um, okay, like if you, if you hate our way of life, you know, if you hate everything about the province why are you still here you know why, why they're are a you... small minority yeah. though they really are and, and honestly so. when you look at uh, people are are kind of uh naive when they look at voting and then use that to uh extrapolate um let's call it national personality because mm. you look at the city of edmonton and and while many people may work in the government there and it may vote largely ndp their voter turnout is low because mm. a lot of conservatives have given up hope. Um, but even more so, almost all of those people have one to two jobs, and it is a hardcore blue-collar town. Yeah. There's all the refineries are there. Uh, there. The money and the wealth of Edmonton is actually not government, even though it is a government town. The wealth and uh, prosperity of Edmonton is based on oil. Mm. And even though... Um, I mean, look at the NDP of Alberta. On an economic issues, they're not exactly radical. Um, uh, I'll say that. Uh, on social issues, they're radical, which is why yeah. I oppose them the way that I do. But um, I wouldn't say that they're economically communist. I would say they're socially communist, which I find even more repulsive. Mm. Uh, but I, Edmonton itself is not a, a left-wing city as much mm. as people might think. Uh, it's just a working-class city. It would be more mm. liberal if it was truly a left-wing city. Yeah, and I mean, there are uh, a good number of people who live in and around Edmonton, in Edmonton, the donut um, that'll oh, commute to Grand yeah. Prairie, commute to Fort Mac. So, I mean, not only uh, do these people work incredibly hard, they also put a lot of miles on the road. And, uh, you know, w when you live that sort of lifestyle, um, you know, voting in an election where the result is a foregone conclusion uh, might not be your highest priority. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I actually think that uh, the UCP will take five to six seats in Edmonton. People laugh when I say that, but uh, I see I see that happening for sure, especially 
in the heavy uh, where ethnic communities are the majority because mm-hmm. I see a big movement from the Muslim community and the Sikh community and yeah. actually the Filipino community to getting involved. So I'm excited yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about hardworking communities, the Filipino community. Um, you know, I kind of, absolutely adore the Filipino yeah. community. And the problem that I have is that they've never been engaged politically. They don't really care about politics. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I, I'm putting it out there. If there's any wonderful Filipino people listening to this podcast, I want to meet you. I want to get involved in your community. I want to get you to involved in your democracy because mm. we need more Filipino representation. Filipino or uh, Tagalog or Tagalog. Sorry, mm. Tagalog is the second most spoken language in Alberta, mm. and we do not really? have we do not have adequate representation from them at all. Wow, more than French. That's that's way more than French. Oh, wow. and way more than Punjab. Uh, way more than any other language is, mm. uh, I think they're almost double. Yeah. But I mean, if you are, you know, going to a Tim Hortons drive through at 1130 <laughs> or you're, you're, you know, at Walmart at 1130. They're, they're like the, the most person, industrious exactly, people. Like the, the, the person cleaning the floor, services, like, nannying. Yeah, it's, it's exactly amazing. like all of the, the kind of labor intensive, low glory uh, jobs here in Canada are. Yeah. So I got a lot of time for that community. Love the Filipinos. I just wish they were more political, to be honest. Yeah. So speaking of funny, the Edmonton but... area, uh, one of my favorite movies about the culture there. Um, have you seen a film called Fubar Two: Balls to the Wall? <laughs> no, I have not. <laughs> Terry and Diener they they go to Fort Mac and um, and hang out in Edmonton as well. But it's just very very true to the culture. And, and it's, oh, I'll have to watch uh, it. Yeah. Uh, have you I mean, watched what's that? Uh, what's that show? That's so Canadian. Uh, Letter Kenny hockey. Oh, Letter yeah. Kenny. That yeah. my my wife doesn't like that humor as much. I think that's like the most Canadiana. Like I feel it's way better than Trailer Park Boys. To be honest, mm. it's my favorite. Your wife's from Ontario, right? Yeah, she's from St. Catharines area. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I um showed my um my wife. I'm uh, from. The- I'm not. I'm not from Ontario. I was born. In, in Alberta, but both of my parents are from Ontario. Okay, yeah. I was uh, um, speaking of St. Catharines. I was showing my wife that documentary about the Ken and Barty killers. Um, <laughs> she's, yeah, she's getting into yeah. that. I, oh, I hate to say it, but like St. Catharines is such a stuff. beautiful, such a beautiful oh, place. Beautiful. I, I did look up that murder house and see if it was on sale. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> no, no word of a lie. Uh, over Christmas, I stayed like blocks away from there. Yeah. Because we got we got family in Buffalo, so it'd be a perfect place for us to relocate. Buffalo's awesome. Yeah, Buffalo is a great city. I great blue Buffalo is the kind of New York that people don't understand yeah. exists. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. we got we got family in upstate New York. It's my wife's. Nice. My that's wife's. A, yeah. That's a mistake a lot of people make. People think that New York is New York City, and in my opinion, yeah. New York City is the worst part of New York State. Absolutely. It's like yeah. everything else about New York is wonderful. New York City, <laughs> gorgeous too. New York City is just not great for me. It's great if you like people who are assholes and smelling piss every time you walk (laughs) outside. Just degeneracy everywhere. But man, if you get out of the city, like upstate New York, it's just the most beautiful countryside in the world. Oh my goodness, it's so perfect. It's lovely, lovely, lovely. Anyway, um, okay. So we have uh, more time. So there's more questions that I would like an answer to from your perspective. I don't see personally much hope for the Canadian project currently mm. because um, because I don't uh, – this is why we started the Canadian story, which we've now changed mm. for that very reason. But um, the reason that I don't see much hope is because there was never much of an identity to begin with. Like mm. uh, there was never uh, – or it was – 
if there was one, it was not well articulated. And it was so not well articulated that someone like myself, who's fifth generation Canadian now, um, doesn't even really have an answer. And Zach, who's obviously my relative, has the same lineage. We couldn't figure out what Canada was. So we started a podcast to try to, to figure it out. And the end result was that we we concluded we didn't even like what it had become. And we loved what maybe it had been, but uh, but it didn't even know what it was. Mm. So with that kind of framing in mind, how would you articulate a vision for Canada that could inspire people to love this place again? Or should we just give up on the Canadian project completely and, mm. and try to forge our own path as perhaps Western provinces or even Alberta alone? Mm. Well, I, I would take the term project maybe somewhat more literally, literally than you're using it. Um, if you look at how Canada became Canada, you look at the project that animated Canada as a country. It was the building of the railroad. And um, I think there's the metaphorical project, but also physical projects. Um, so one thing I'll say is we've seen a nadir in Canadian national identity over the past decade. And I think generally speaking, a big part of why I favor conservatives over the Liberal Party is I think the Liberal Party by design is bad for national unity. Uh, periods of Liberal government uh, tend to be associated with periods of low national identity. The last time uh, there was a liberal government in power for an extended period of time. We almost lost Quebec. Um, so if you're Justin Trudeau, um, if you're Jean Chrétien, um, you can sew the whole thing up by, uh, you know, getting the greater Toronto area, getting the area surrounding Montreal and Atlantic Canada. If you're a conservative government, um, you know, you got to get a good chunk of the GTA. You have to make a appearance in, yeah, you have to have a decent showing in Quebec. And, you know, you have to do well in every province of Western Canada. Um, so I think when we have periods of conservative government, um, we tend to have more uh, national identity. We tend to have more optimism about Canada as a, quote, project. So the last time I remember seeing really overt, um, you know, really enthusiastic displays of Canadian patriotism uh, was when the Olympics were in Vancouver in 2010. Oh, um, I yeah. was very I was fortunate there. to be there. I was there. Yeah, I was, yeah, so I was very fortunate. I was working in Victoria at the time, but I was fortunate to, to be able to go back to Vancouver um, for some of the events. But literally, you know, everyone would be wearing those red mittens. Uh, you know, people the jerseys, would be chanting. The Canada jerseys. Yeah, I exactly. still have one. Yeah. Exactly. So I think, um, you know, part of why I'm not sort of totally libertarian free market is I see nation building projects, you know, like an Olympics, like Canada's game, like a railroad as important to creating this collective sense of achievement. Uh, you know, when, when Sidney Crosby scored that goal in overtime, oh, that was yeah. an achievement for all of us. Um, so for me, you know, I take the term project uh, a bit more literally. Um, and I think, uh, you know, a project that's staring us right in the face is getting our resources to market. Um, supplying, corridor. you know, yeah. Asia Pacific with natural gas. Um, you know how many lives we can save um, yeah. by, you know, getting South Korea. Forget about climate change and climate targets. Um, how many lives we can save, you know, by getting those countries off of coal, um, you know, by uh, sparing those populations of the kind of respiratory and health issues uh, that are associated with burning coal uh, to produce your energy. Um, so for me, I mean, that project is staring us right in the face. Um, that could be a massive national accomplishment. So um, for me, when I think about Canadian project, um, I think about building things. I think that's always been something We're that's beaver. united. We all are of the us. beaver. We are exactly. the beaver. Exactly the industriousness, um, and you know, I think about collective accomplishments. And sure, sure, we have a myriad 
cultural differences, uh, you know, between the Atlantic Canada and Quebec and Ontario and Western Canada, and that's fine. Um, but I think building things and collective accomplishments, um, that's something that, that we can all rally around. I love that. You know what? That's uh that's a breath of fresh air and a dark night, my friend. Yeah, <laughs> also, I also want to jump in and say something because I just thought of this now because um David and I, so we we had the project, the Canadian story. We the inception and, and the idea behind that project was let's let's find let's find Canadian identity and celebrate it. And um we we laughed about it on the on the first episode that we did for this podcast. the The point of the project was to figure out how great Canada was, and mm-hmm. in trying to do so, and I I, I mean I guess it was ill timed because of the pandemic, and mm-hmm. we we felt lots of ways about that. <laughs> but uh, um, we we came to the conclusion that Canada wasn't so great. But I think, uh, and I'm I'm just coming to think of this now, and and this is humbling for me. I think we need to be careful about that statement because, um we don't want to fall into the class of people that are self-degradating for the purpose of virtue. And, and we do live in an, in an, in an incredible country. And it's really refreshing to hear someone like you, Raheem talk about, Hey, look at like all of this opportunity that we have. And I think that's actually an immigrant's perspective. Not that you yourself are an immigrant, but um, with, with the background, I think that's, I think that's a perspective that, people who come to this country take. And I actually think that's a perspective that we born in this country take for granted because there is an abundance of opportunity. There's a place we can take this country that is good um, in the grand scheme and in the in the more kind of focused, like right, right there in front of you scheme, there's a place that you can take your life in this country that is good. And we haven't lost that yet. And I think there's plenty of people on board who want to build good things in this country. And I think it's important for us to not forget that. So that's just kind of a passing thought that I had um, yeah. listening to, to the chat that we're having here. Yeah. So I, um, what so do you, I have what do you... a rather morbid anecdote to kind of illustrate how people elsewhere in the world view Canada and in particular its material abundance. Um, so during the Holocaust, um, there was a room in each camp where they would put, you know, the gold teeth, the jewelry, et cetera, mm. um, taken from prisoners. And that room was called Canada to convey, you know, the amount of abundance and wealth that was untapped that Canada had. Hmm. That's horrible, but crazy. Wow. It's yeah. So it's, it's kind of a morbid anecdote, but it gives you a sense of, and How even in China, you know, of us, yeah. Canada is known as kind of the golden mountains. Um, so, you know, Canadians, um, when we're kind of in our own minds, when we're looking inward, I think a lot of the time we don't appreciate the amount of wealth, uh, the amount of resource wealth, the amount of material wealth, um, that we have, um, you know, given a quite small population. Um, so I think if you're new to Canada, if you've experienced life in, uh, you know, a more crowded, more polluted uh, part of the world with, le- with less opportunity, uh, potentially you're more attuned um, to all of the advantages that we have living in Canada, at least materially, um, than, than you might be if you're born here and you're raised here and Canada is all you know. Yeah, I think you want to I know think I would... an interesting stat, Raheem, that mm. you might appreciate. Did you know that the Highway Two corridor is one of the most densely populated geographic regions in Canada? Yeah, I heard. I heard that. I think it's getting. It's getting only going to get more populated. Oh yeah, we're going to so. have ten million in like in a th- in three hundred square miles. Yeah, yeah. Already, um, already nipping at the heels of British Columbia. Yeah. Is is Highway yeah. Two the highway between Calgary and Edmonton, Edmonton and Calgary? Yeah. 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 
Okay. And it's going to get uh, about 50% of Alberta's population growth uh, over the next decade. Yes. It'll did be you know, huge. It's awesome. Did you know the GTA is more dense in terms of population than Los Angeles is? <laughs> yeah, I believe it. It's because we, in, 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 in the GTA, we built up and in Los Angeles. I, I, I like to bring this up every so often because my wife's mm-hmm. from Los Angeles and she loves to complain <laughs> about the traffic mm-hmm. and it's horrid. Yeah. <laughs> but technically speaking, for the amount of roads that we have, there are it's it would be um more Better. occupied than than the than the traffic in in Los Angeles because there's more people per square mile. Mm. Wow. Well, we're not building roads anymore. That's um no, uh, yes, that's too much yes. of a, too much of a carbon footprint. The the <laughs> minister of the environment has informed us that we won't be doing any more roads. Comrade Gabo. I guess when did that happen? In, in uh, who comes ago, up with these ideas? Ago? Like who who sits who sits in a room and is like Let's stop building roads. That sounds good. <laughs> Literally, what do we say the purpose of government is? Right? We're like, well, at least they build the roads. It's like now the we don't even first thing I say. It's like I, it's like I pay so many taxes, but at least I have roads to drive on. Like that's the bone I'll throw you, <laughs> and they're taking it from me. <laughs> I know. Oh, uh, that's ridiculous. How do they come up with these policies? And how are there other people sitting in that room? nodding along going, oh yeah, that sounds right. That sounds like a good thing to do. That's yeah. smart. Like, how does this happen? What is, what, yeah. David, explain to me because you you have sat in the room. What is the bubble of government? It makes no sense to me. <laughs> it's power hungry lunatics who are mm-hmm. trying to control other people. It's really what it is. By building That's less roads. Ultimate. <laughs> well, like, so I see, so here's the thing. And people make fun of me on the internet. And I love it, actually. They draw a lot of attention to me, and I, I definitely stir the pot. Uh, and I mean, every, even time, like Ryan, every time David Ryan Jesperson has caught on, and he's like, I hate mentioning him because every time I mention him, I know it makes him so happy. Every so, time whatever. every time I sign on to your Twitter, David, and I see someone calling you a Russian plant, I have a beautiful moment <laughs> laughing to myself. <laughs> I know, I know. Makes me so but, but, happy. But, but, but the point that I want to make uh, is, like, when you when you look at the reality of the environmentalist movement. I am more of an environmentalist than any of them. I want to grow my own food. Uh, I want to compost everything that, oh, as much waste as I can. I want to build my own home. I've been a huge fan of Tesla and uh, alternative energy for most of my adult life. Um, I just think that solar and wind are not at the point where they can sustain the energy needed for a growing population. Mm. Um, but nuclear, I'm the biggest fan of nuclear you'll ever meet. I think that modular nuclear reactors are the future of humanity and of our resource production. But the thing is, these environmentalists don't care about any of these things. Mm-hmm. What they care about is their religion. And it is a religion, and that's why James Lindsay calls them the Green Garden. I couldn't agree more, because it's actually just communism described or d- disguised as caring for the environment. If we truly cared about the environment, we would be following Raheem's advice and and exporting as much natural gas as we possibly can to Asia. Like we would be spending every effort we could, because that's the best thing we can do to reduce emissions. But the truth of the matter is, they don't care about reducing emissions and saving the planet. They care about taxing people more and controlling them more because we could all turn off all the lights in Alberta and we could all walk into an early grave at minus 50 and wipe out the entire population here and never uh, mine another gigajoule of energy from the earth 
and it would have absolutely zero impact on global warming or climate change because mm. it wouldn't even make a dent. We, it wouldn't even make a dent. I think mm. I think this is going back to a Tim Crowder episode, but I think he said because he read the Paris Accord, and I'd have to you take this with a grain of salt, but I'm pretty sure it was 1.4 percent of the global carbon footprint. Mm. Is that's, and, that's, and that's not Alberta, that's Canada. That's Canada. Mm. So it was either 1.2 or 1.4%. So if Canada just snap shut off and all us evil white people driving our cars went away, it would make a 1.4% dent in the global carbon problem. Which and doesn't even equal the yearly increase from India and China alone. Mm. It's just, it's so silly. It's so, so silly. It's virtue uh, signaling. It's a religion. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about that, Raheem? Sure. So I'll add one thing. Um, I care a lot about families. Uh, I care about young men. Uh, there are four places in North America where a high school graduate uh, this day and age you know, can learn a trade, um, get a six-figure salary, um, four or five years down the road, buy a house. Um, Alberta, Saskatchewan, North Dakota, Alaska. Um, so for me, I care a lot not only about the resource sector, but resource jobs. Um, you know, not everyone is going to be a software engineer. Um, you know, not everyone is going to be a heart surgeon. Um, I think it's or so an important. AI to have, trainer or whatever. Exactly. Those I new mean, jobs I, are. Yeah. I, I think it's so important to have those opportunities, um, you know, for high school graduates, um, for people with moderate skill levels, you know, who are willing to work hard. And, um, you know, I see resource jobs, particularly coming from the former coal country. Um, coming from Kentucky, uh, where coal jobs at one point were just as abundant as oil jobs in, in, in Alberta. And, you know, you look at those depressed formal coal er former coal areas in Kentucky and how they've become hotbeds for, um, you know, drug youth, um, drug use, um, the opioid crisis, um, you know, the meth crisis, um, and just how families have been obliterated um, by a lack of availability, um, you know, of those career paths um, that, you know, high school educated, less well-off people um, would be able to follow toward higher mobility. Um, so for me, I, I care a lot about, I care more about the here and now than, um, you know, whether we're 1.5 degrees warmer in 100 years or two degrees warmer, whatever that means. Um, it's interesting how the climate folks, you know, always will immediately jump to a worst case scenario. Uh, the fact of the matter is I accept global warming. I accept that it's ongoing. It's likely inevitable. Um, does that necessarily lead to an apocalypse a hundred years down the road? I, I, I don't see kind of where that jump in logic gets and anything that's framed in a kind of black and white good versus evil manner scares me um, because mm. you can use it to justify any sort of government intervention, um, any sort of restriction on individual liberty. Tyranny. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I want to kind of develop on that. I really love what you said. I, I care about families. I care about young people. Um, a mistake I feel, I mean, not a, not necessarily a mistake, but um, something that I didn't understand correctly when I was young and making decisions about what I wanted to do with my life is how viable and awesome and valuable and how successful you can become in trades, in <clears throat> blue collar oh, yeah. jobs. I oh, yeah. I was I was taught in school, man, it's like you gotta graduate high school, you gotta get a university education, you maybe gotta do a master's, you gotta like go that route and that's the only way that you can make something out of yourself. And I look at, so my wife works in the car industry, I look at <clears throat> some of the, the vendors that she works with, some of the body shop owners who are just- <laughs> Oh, yeah. they're cleaning. rolling in it. Yeah. Rolling in and, it. And loving their lives. <laughs> 
Oh they're yeah, loving love their lives. Great. They, and, and you know what? They have a cottage, and they go there for a month every summer. And they, I'm sure, and they're they love successful. Their lives. Owning they're, a small business, their is families the way. are happy. They're it's successful. The their families are happy. They have spending money. They are putting money away for retirement, and they're doing it by just going into a trade. And I was never taught that, and I wish it was taught that. And I'm very, I'm very happy with how my life is turning out, and I'm not complaining. And I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm doing that. But if there are young people listening to this, man, do not throw the trades out the window just because someone <laughs> no. says you have to go to university to make no. something of yourself. And I think yeah. that's even more true now than it was when I was considering university, you know, <laughs> whatever it was 12 or 15 years ago. I feel like universities are just a disastrous mess, <laughs> even compared to a decade ago. Um, even David, your brother, our, my you know my cousin. Oh he, yeah, he went well, into we the trade. We won't go into details about him because but, he doesn't. Uh, but he's he doesn't he's want a happy to know things. No, that's fine. All I'm saying is yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's a happy man, and I'm happy for mm-hmm. him. And yeah. all I would like to illustrate with the point is that there is so much opportunity for work there, and I think you touched on something really, really important and special, Raheem, by saying you care about young people, you care about families. There's an opportunity to have a go at it by doing something like that. And I think that's something that gets, that gets missed in our country and our culture. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. One last thing that I want to talk about before we, uh, we end today, I wanted mm-hmm. to, to talk a little bit about the demographics of Alberta. You're, a, you're an observant man, a well-educated man. Mm-hmm. You like to study data. I love to study data. Yeah. You write about data. Um, People often, I think, get lost in the numbers because they look at percentages instead of total numbers. But I think you look at the future of Alberta, it's going to be bigger and more prosperous than most Middle Eastern countries uh, already. But in the future, uh, this is where you want to be. And I want to talk about the average age of an Albertan. And what you've seen about families and how many kids does the average Albertan have? Like, what what have you seen here that's different than Ontario? So Alberta has the youngest median age, I believe, of any uh, province in Canada. And it's, um, I believe the median age the last time I looked was 38 years old, um, which is about the median age in the United States. 38.1, yeah. Yeah, and, and not only that, but it's it might be the only province where there are more millennials than boomers. Uh, yeah. Millennials and boomers are one and two everywhere, uh, but millennials outnumber boomers here in Alberta. Millennials outnumber boomers in the United States, and I very much do think demographics drive politics. Um, so it's millennials a lot in the United States um, that are pushing for more open policies, that are pushing for policies, uh, you know, that will allow them to start families, that will allow them to start businesses, that will allow them to be mo- upwardly mobile. I do think that demographic. Um, presence is important to having a political agenda recognized or your political uh, well-being recognized by um, by the powers that be. Um, and I see, uh, you know, a lot of the same thing in Alberta. I think, uh, you know, a lot of us, um, you and I, Dave, would be kind of, David would be on the older uh, side of millennials. Yeah. So, you know, oh, we're yeah. looking, yeah. Uh, I think you just had your first child. Congratulations on Thank that. Thank you. Thank uh, you. But, you yeah. know, we're looking, you know, kind of it's sad we're becoming our parents. Um, we kind of want the same boring, uh, you know, the house in the suburbs. Um, you know, it's interesting. When I was growing up, um, I went to a pretty economically mixed school. Um, my best friend, um, his family owned a ranch um, in in Pritchard, which was a, um, a, um, a bedroom community of Kamloops. Um, had another friend who lived on the Indian Reservation. Um, his dad uh, worked at the copper mine in Kamloops. And um, 
they were, they were not rolling in it, but all of us, um, you know, our parents for the most part own their own homes. Um, all of us were able to play hockey, uh, you know, to play, um, soccer, to, to kind of do whatever to pursue extracurriculars. Um, so for me, you know, having that broad, um, well-being kind of that, that broad, um, sort of family environment, um, atmosphere is really important to me. And I think you have more of that in Alberta than a lot of the rest of Canada because millennials are the largest demographic and we're, I think, pushing policy. I think, uh, take back Alberta is a great example of that. Um, you know, we're pushing policy. I know everyone uh, thinks it's just a bunch of old people. No, they don't know. Is it just yeah. a bunch of moms? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Love, love me some soccer moms. It's literally moms. Yeah. Love it's me all some soccer just moms, the, yeah. like a whole bunch of moms, which is yeah, awesome. I'll show moms. up to meetings yeah. and dodge caravans. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, no, like they're, you know, it's just like people who care about the future uh, yeah. is ultimately yeah. what it is. So it's grandparents and moms. Not a lot, and, and and you know what? I was thinking about what you said earlier about radicaliz- radicalization and young men, yeah. uh, Raheem. And I think one of the reasons we haven't seen nearly as much left wing radicalization in Alberta as other places across Canada is because all the young men are working. Yeah. And if you mm. if you want to have a house and a wife and a family in Alberta, you could still get that. It's harder yeah. than it's ever been, and I want to change that. I want to I want to see huge housing projects in Calgary. And I want to build, we need to build this province and we need to make it what it's supposed to be. We have enough land. Uh, A little known fact about Calgary is it's the largest city on earth, uh, land mass wise. No way. So, yep. Bigger than any other city on the face of the planet. Yeah, it feels like four cities. Each of the quadrants have their own personality. Oh yeah, exactly. So uh, we we have a lot of densification that we can do, and I, I I unlike most conservatives am a fan of densification, and I believe that it's the future of humanity to a big degree. Although I will say that the Alberta project is the densification I think should be spread out across our many beautiful communities mm. like Red Deer, Lethbridge, Grand Prairie, Bonneville. Mm. You know the whole beautiful uh, Red Deer, obviously Lacombe. There's so many beautiful, wonderful places to live in this province. Uh, and more than enough land for everybody, but we need to we need to change our policies so that we can construct the kind of uh, kind of society we want. Uh, and 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 what I wanted to say on that is, I hope that Albertans start having a lot of kids because that's how. And and I, my favorite one of my favorite communities in this whole province is La Crete. Uh, and I don't know if you have ever been to La Crete. It's eight hours north of Edmonton almost on the border with the Northwest Territories. It's a Mennonite community. They just built a new hockey arena. For, they have a very good uh, youth hockey program in La Crete and spend a lot of uh, community time on it. And they got the banners all hanging from the roof. But they had to build a birthing center in La Crete because they're having so many babies. Mm. That's a healthy society. Yeah. When, when, when people want to have children, you're living in a healthy society. And I think the whole world has got sick. Mm. The whole world has has got the notion that life is about something other than family. Yeah, and I mean, I think, we, we kind of hit the early 2000s and, uh, you know, the whole sex in the city, you know, being single with no kids in your 30s and 40s, uh, you know, with a closet full of Valentino gowns, uh, that was somehow how glamorous. But um, no, I mean, I think about the things in my life that give me pleasure, that give me meaning. You know, my niece is at the top of my list. Um, I'm sure, you know, your child, you know, your nieces, your nephews, uh, you know, those are the things that are totally game changing. 
Oh, that and, changes your whole perspective on yeah. reality. You you care about everything way more, mm. I would say. Yeah. So as someone uh, who comes from a community that values family a mm. lot, um, obviously, I don't think that Islam would be successful without their value of family. Oh, yeah. um, why do you think that uh, the men and women of our our generation, millennials, have turned on their own humanity so viciously? Well, I think it's it's complicated. One, one really interesting factor is so women, um, kind of the twenty four to thirty five, uh, that kind of dating marrying age, they're more left of center than they've ever been. Um, men that age are creeping to to the right. Um, so you have a wider ideological gulf, and I think it's very challenging uh, to marry someone. You know, if you share uh, political values and leanings that are antithetical. I mean, it can work for some people. Um, so yeah, we, we are, um, I think we've, we've moved away from a monoculture and, um, you know, women in their formative years, um, you know, kind of teens, early twenties, um, they're consuming different media. They have different influences, uh, than sort of teenage men and, and young adult males. And I think that might be part of what's driving those two demographics apart. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm glad I'm married because dating was freaking brutal. <laughs> dating oh, is an, I do oh. not, I do not miss that. Um, and I don't know, but in the modern does, world, I don't think it was always this way, but it's just gross. There, there does seem to be this sort of mutual hostility and, and, um, you know, being, being and in, no trust and yeah. no, no valuing each other as people. Everyone's a commodity, right? It's yeah. like, Oh, how, Oh, how many dates can I go on? I don't. Yeah. I don't even want to go into it. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah. And kind of it's swiping horrible. right and left based on oh, some appearance. And yeah, so it, it's, it's gross. It, it's it's brutal out there, and I'm gl- I'm glad to be out of it. I mean, I'm glad to be um, you know hopefully starting a family in the near future and, and on to the next stage of my life. I mean, I'm really um, enjoying this stage of my life so much. You know, enjoying building stuff, enjoying seeing uh, the next generation in terms of nieces and nephews uh, start uh, start coming out of the woodwork. Um, I got this. I got to say, this is a really um, love love creeping toward middle age. I think middle age is gonna gonna suit me me really well. <laughs> You're like <laughs> I, I'm gonna tell it. you, man. I, I I thought all my life, you know, your 20s are over, your life yeah, is over kind of exactly. thing. I had that almost, you know, like Caesar's walking by, you know, the shrine to Alexander the Great and he's 32 and he looks at it and he's, it's like, you know, he died. Alexander yeah. the Great died in his early 30s. And, uh, and the, the line is literally Caesar wept <laughs> because he hadn't conquered anything yet, yeah. he felt like, right? And it's like, I'm the opposite. I was like, you know, the 20s happened and they were what they were. But my 30s have been so infinitely better than my 20s in every measurable way that you can <clears> imagine. I I guess Zach was earlier saying if there's younger people listening to this, uh, there's hope. I would say there's an unbelievable amount of hope and that you're yeah. and that the lie of modern culture that youth is the only thing that matters is a complete waste of time and get over it as quick as you can. Yeah, I mean, mm. I'll say watching hockey's brutal. I'm around the same age as Crosby and Ovechkin. <laughs> And people are talking about them like, you know, they're lame horses that, that need to be sent to the glue factory. <laughs> the, uh, I, I can echo that, man. It's I'm, So I'm 31 now, and it's really yeah. humbling. I love hockey. I love hockey yeah. so much. But that you watch hockey, and you're like, oh, yeah, that, that, that guy's really, you know, he's a new guy. He's like, oh, yeah, he's really, oh, oh. Wow, look at what he's done at 21. Like he's 21, 22. It's like, oh man, I'm 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 finally old. Like this guy is 10 years younger than me and just like smashing it. it. Like, just <laughs> killing it. It's yeah. just like it's I still love the game, but every time I see something like that, I'm like, 
<laughs> yeah, you learn what your hamstrings are. You learn what what a little. Oh, you learn all kinds of things. It's, but it's fun. Back. It's yeah. good. It's but good. it's better. And I, I'll, I'll better. agree with you, David. Yeah. Everything about my thirties, everything about my thirties has been so much better than my twenties. And um, yeah, maybe maybe to a certain extent, like you you got to enjoy being young and you got to go to your thing. But like, hang in there if you're feeling down because it gets better. I promise. It, does. it gets. Oh yeah. It gets so much better. Ah. Uh. Well, so and and I would say, if you really use your twenties uh, in the way that both Zach and Raheem did, obviously by their resumes and their lives, and I suppose I'm not going to say whether I use them properly or not, but uh, if you use your, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say you did a great job. <laughs> <laughs> if you use your twenties appropriately, uh, you could set yourself up for the rest of your life. If you waste yeah. your twenties with pleasure and traveling and Instagram and TikTok and clubs and I can go on and on. If you waste it with, I'm going to say it straight up, if you waste it with entertaining yourself, you can make entertainment. That's awesome. That's creation. That's awesome. But if you use up your time, if you fill it with entertainment, you're going to have a miserable rest of your life. And I'm watching my, my friends who did that they have horrible lives. And the friends that I have that invested in building a life for themselves in their 20s, every single one of them is doing well. So that would be my my take on that. Yeah, I mean, I graduated high school in 2004. Uh, not everyone was going to college, but the, the the guys that didn't, a lot of them went up to Fort Mac. Um, you know, they worked a few years. They were able to afford houses. Um, they quite prudently bought houses. Um, other friends of mine, um, you know, were um, enlisted in the Canadian military. Um, so I think for whatever reason, we're losing that. You know, we're losing, uh, you know, post-secondary education is not a viable path for everyone. Not everyone um, would find it engaging or stimulating. Um, I think it's important to have those other paths and to give a, a level of um, prestige to those other, other paths. And, and I feel like I was kind of at the tail end of that. Um, you know, I loved how people... Um, you know, B students, C students, you know, could go up to Fort Mac, learn a trade, um, and within three, four years have a house. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's we're losing that. And I think that is an under discussed aspect of the crisis of masculinity that's mm. upon us. Yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, our next episode after you is uh, my good friend. Uh, and I guess becoming a bit of a relationship guru, although I never knew him as that. Uh, Matt, Matt ends uh, the mm. sovereign man on yes. on tw on uh, Instagram, and um, he's dedicated his life to trying to save people's marriages by teaching men that they're actually men, mm. and that that is different than being a woman. It's mm. wild. It's yeah. wild. Anyway, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's what women want too. Like that's that's yeah. Everyone want a man. Women want but, a man. But I, I think there are certain <laughs> immutable laws of nature. That uh, you know we can, uh, for all our pretensions to to being, you know, kind of advanced and postmodern, um, I, I think those are are more or less ironclad. I agree. Well, I gotta I gotta run here, and mm. uh, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I wanted to thank you for mm. uh, speaking up, for choosing to be a voice for your people and for people who see the way the world the way that you do. That's what I try to do, uh, and sometimes I fail at that by being too mean. And I would actually say one of the things that I admire about you is that you do uh, approach these things with a, the attitude of a gentleman, uh, whereas I often approach them with the attitude of someone wanting to destroy my enemies. So 
I hope to Got learn more. Scholar, from- I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I hope to learn more from you. Yeah. As well as time goes on, and and hopefully to learn a little, little bit of your diplomatic tact. Let's call it that. I appreciate that. Thank you. That's a nice compliment. <laughs>